Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Hi, this is Buzz Knight, the host of the Taking a Walk podcast series and our special New York City Greenwich Village series rolls on. And my guest is the proprietor of the music inn, Jeff Slatnik. Jeff, it's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, uh, actually, physically, and whoever is out there in the future who might hear this, I'll never see you, but I might dream uh, you in my thoughts. So let's see what happens. So we're going to take a walk through the Music Inn and uh, tell the audience a little bit about the Music Inn for sure. those that uh, maybe have never never run into it. Well, uh, they can't see nothing, but uh, the Music Inn was started in 1958 by a, a GI who came back from the Korean War. And his wife had a little bit of money and they started a record store. And right away, they started selling instruments, like guitars, and then banjos and mandolins, American folk instruments. The 50s was, you know, really hot in the village for American folk music. And then as the 60s rolled in, they went much more international. And they had sitars and instruments from China. And and I'm not talking about, you know guitars made in China. I'm talking about Chinese instruments and Japanese instruments and African instruments. Uh, I got here in this store in 1967. Uh, I had come back from California and got a job playing the sitar in a discotheque in the East Village called the Electric Circus. And uh, I needed strings for the sitar and I came to the music inn. Somebody suggested they had them. And the owner of the store said, listen, hey, you know how to play the sitar. Perhaps you'd be interested in working from now in uh, November till Christmas on Saturdays, just helping because it's a busy day and people need help with sitars. Very popular. The Beatles had used sitar in their records and everyone was aware of it at that time. 
So I started working here then, and then after uh, well, maybe six months, I set out back to California and uh, studied Indian classical music. Meantime, the store was going on. It was a very busy place. There were like, it was open from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. There were two shifts, and each shift had like six employees on a shift. Uh, the guy who originally owned the store, uh, may he rest in peace, was uh, very paranoid of being robbed and everything. So his method was he'd take all the records out of the covers, put the covers stacked in the bins for customers to peruse, and stuck the records in the wall, locked in the wall. When a customer picked a record, and of course there were a lot less records in the 60s, but when a customer picked a record, We'd have to go find the number of the record and the label it was on, capital 21765, and put it back in the sleeve. Anyway, so there were many employees working here doing it, and it was busy uh, night and day. Uh, this place, when you walk in, has this amazing uh, aura and energy about it. Um, do you find it just uh, the way, you know, it's just created as a building, or do the guitars and sitars and instruments bring the aura? Yeah, I'll tell you, tell you all of it so you can get an idea. Uh, as we're walking, literally, there, there, while, are, there are guitars just, everywhere. Yeah, just let me catch up real fast. So I went back to California, I came back in 1976, and I got a job immediately playing music in Midtown, and I just stopped to see if the store was still in business. And the guy asked me again, hey, I remember you. You want to work till Christmas. So during a long, long period of uh, uh, becoming the store physically, spiritually, and mentally, uh, it was a perfect fit for me. And I started working two days, three days, five days. Now I work seven days a week. Uh, after a while, there was just me and the original owner. His wife had died, and uh, he was old, and he had Parkinson's, so he just sat behind the desk and just sat there all day. And I would just take care of everybody, and I loved climbing all over the place. I'd climb on these shelves here that the records were in, and eventually after... Uh, he got so ill, he stayed at home all the time. I just ran the store by myself. I found the guy who I played basketball with uh, just a block from here on Greenwich Village. There's a famous West 4th Street basketball court. Uh, many people from Kareem all the way down the line played there at one time or another. And I used to play there uh, when I was much younger. And... Uh, I found a guy there who was very pleasing, he was big and tall, he could reach up and reach things hanging from the ceiling, and uh, I brought him here and he started working part-time and he would take care of Jerry, who was now infirm. Then Jerry, who wanted to die, just wanted to get out of here and die, I wouldn't let him die, I kept him alive, he got into uh, concrete poetry. He would get a big crayon and with two hands he'd write a little poem on a big piece of paper and he'd take it to these poetry readings and he suddenly had a new life. And he lived for about another five or six years. And Taran, my uh, assistant, who I met at the basketball tour, would take him around in a wheelchair and they had a time and then eventually he died and 
Turan came and worked here with me, and uh, I don't know where he is today. He'll maybe show up. You never know. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, uh, after Jerry died, I put a stairway in the store. There was always a basement, but you had to go outside and around through the hallway in the building to get to the basement. So I hired these guys. They cut a hole in the floor. This is a like, building from 1900, so... It was quite a thing uh, for them to do it. The beams were pieces of wood that must have been 200 years old. Oh. Uh, I make instruments, unusual instruments. Uh, I'll show you one here that are carved out of wood. They're hand-carved. So one of them downstairs, they look like this. This is a base, but downstairs there is these solid body electric sitars and Indian type instruments, although I've made cellos and violins and all kinds of things, but as solid body electric instruments with a new kind of organic design that reflects the physics of the process. Beautiful. Simply beautiful. Would you like to come downstairs? Oh, I'd love to. Let's do that. What a treasure. So when the stairs got cut out there was a big beam here and I made uh, one of the instruments which we'll show you downstairs from the beam cut out uh, a guy who was originally one of my students I taught Indian music uh, was uh, a big strong Viking and we started carving instruments together and we've been doing it for almost 20 years we've sold probably about 80 to 100 instruments. Uh, we started numbering them now. This is 108. And uh, this one was made from the beam in the ceiling. As you can see, the wood is quite interesting. Yeah, look at that. Uh, anyway, it was fun to work with, but it's a hard wood to work with because it's not hard. It's a, sort of a fake wood. Uh, the outer layer, a very thin outer layer, is very hard, but the tree inside is very soft wood. So it kind of like gives a presentation as if it's a soft tree, but a hard tree, but it's a very flexible bending tree. That, Are you still playing? Uh, I still play a bit uh, every day, a little bit. I don't perform anymore. Uh, we have shows here at the store. We clean out the drums in this room, and we turn out the lights, and that's the stage, and we set up maybe 40 chairs, and uh, we have open mics every Thursday night. Uh, we've been doing it for years now, having shows. Other people write their own shows and have used the store for it, the basement here. So, And that's the core of Greenwich Village forever, these great places that, oh, for uh, sure. you know, small venues, that um, you know, so much started and began, but there's also these little pockets of places like this, right? Yeah, I, I saw Bob Dylan at an open mic in the Cafe Wa years ago when he was at an snowboarding. open mic. Yeah, yeah. Did you uh, think he was any good? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> and uh, and then he came out with his first record, and he hung around this store. He knew Jerry well the guy who started the store, and he hung around here. He would borrow instruments and go two doors down was a big space. Because you imagine it was very crowded upstairs. So he would take an instrument and go two doors down where there was a big sandal shop. Yo, yo. 
T, that you? Yeah. This guy is uh, interviewing me for a podcast. His, his name is Mr. Knight. <laughs> Hello there. Yeah? Hi. Well, how you doing, sir? Good, sir. How are you? All right. Well, what's the... What's the... What's the publication? It's called. It's a podcast called Taking a Walk. So we're just walking through, and um, oh, yeah. Jeff is telling me the great stories of uh, of this amazing place. Now, I told you his name is T or Turan, but uh, he's actually a well known boxing reporter. Uh, it's Chuck Nitty is yeah. his name, and oh, Chuck uh, Nitty, yeah. <laughs> he is known by many boxers and stuff like that because he. Uh, yeah, I'm just getting a little heavy. But, uh, <laughs> no, you look great. You still know me, though. Oh, it's uh, nice to meet you. They're all afraid of him, I think. They all think that maybe he's going to... Don't say that, man. Uh, all the dudes looking for me, man. <laughs> Wait, we're afraid of him? Come on. Come on, stop like that. I'm wrong guy. I'm Jeff. <laughs> anyway, let's walk around some more. Sure. I'm loving it. Uh, this So this is the percussion room with every kind of percussion. And uh, even... Uh, who knows what that is? Uh, <laughs> this is the wind room, which I gotta turn the lights on. That's just all kinds of wind instruments from everywhere in the world. Look at this! Wow! But, uh, all these instruments. Do you now, if if somebody said, "Hey, can you find absolutely," a, and the most obscure thing, you would know exactly where it is. Yeah, I would know where it is and what it is and. Now, yep. what is this? You have like a... These are a, draws of reeds for oh, okay. all the wind instrument things, mouthpieces for all different kinds of instruments. And What's your favorite instrument? Do you have one? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, when I was a young man, and I, I felt that I liked strings, that was always my favorite, to play on strings. And I played lots of different string instruments. I started with the violin, and then I got a guitar when I was 10. But uh, of all the instruments, I found that uh, strings without frets that could be plucked really appealed to me, but they, it was an underdeveloped field. So, of course, now my favorite instrument is that orange, what I call a zarod. It's based on the Indian surod which is a fretless instrument that you slide on, but it's very vocal. It's like a voice. You can pluck it, and it sustains, and you can play some beautiful, beautiful music on it. I'm not going to play for you right now, but... That's okay. I'll show you around. Uh, over the years, uh, I've also been doing comic books here. Uh, one day, uh, my son brought home a friend of his, this guy from Trinidad, and he showed me a drawing of my son standing on a pile of rubble and me standing next to him saying to him, Kool-Aid, you better clean this mess up before your mom gets home. <laughs> and I just thought it was a funny drawing. It was good. I bought it from him. And then he started bringing me drawings every day. And so I suggested if he wanted me to buy his drawings, he had to put them in sequence. So he did a comic book. Then I suggested a couple of stories for comic books, and we 
sort of started that way. Uh, this has been going on now maybe 20 years, and uh, I guess it's run its course. We've just done our last one, probably. But that sounds like maybe not. Maybe, maybe Yeah, maybe you, you never, never know. know. I have a new story, but he wants to take a, a break for a number of years and do other things. So he's the artist, and I just tell him the stories. And let's go, you know. How is the village changed in your opinion over the years or has well, it the changed? Well vill the village really hasn't changed but of course the world has changed and everyone knows the world has changed in so many ways but uh, the village always sort of represents this uh, energy that is uh, the same no matter what happens in the world politically or socially and uh, for some reason the village is a place uh, where you got to imagine the density of the earth under it is so great that when these prehistoric rivers carved the Hudson Valley and everything like that, they got to this part of Manhattan and they just took away everything except this rock that, you know, became Manhattan. And it's just solid rock. And as it turns out... Uh, Gravity is a real force in nature, and the more dense the rock and the more solid it is, the greater its gravity. So it seems like people are attracted from all over the world to New York just by the gravity of the situation. But the village is a special place. Before there were any white men, all the Indian tribes would come to the village to have their powwows. There was a stream that ran from 15th Street all the way th right through the middle of Washington Square Park and turned uh, just before the store, maybe if you go down to the corner, uh, the block, you'll see it, the river turned and then it ran all the way to the Hudson. Now it was a perfect place for Indians to come from different boroughs, different uh, smaller tribes. They would all come and hold... Oh, probably a whole week powwow. Just going, getting high, who knows what. Playing music. Playing yeah. music and dancing and the whole thing and discussing their individual political issues. Uh, so, of course, uh, it's an interesting history of the village. The village, the first man who actually farmed the village was an African slave who was freed, who was brought by the Dutch. And it's a very interesting story. If you want to hear the whole story, it's quite a fascinating sure. story. Yeah. Well, this guy's name was Manuel the Giant. And he was first brought to Manhattan when there were only 20 Dutch settlers here. And they had come from Newfoundland, which was in Canada. And uh, they settled because they heard Henry Hudson had sailed through the Varanazo Straits and recognized that there was an island right down there. So they came and they settled. Uh, in 1624, a guy named Staghen arrived from the company to see what the colony had done. And he wrote notes back to the, uh, the Dutch East India Company, and now this actual letter is in The Hague. And he brought this slave with him that he had purchased 
or captured from a Spanish or Portuguese ship, and now this guy was his property. So they came here and they found that the Dutch had uh, bought Manhattan in their minds for 60 guilders worth of trinkets. And they already had a supply to send back to the Dutch East India Company of things like, uh, I have the figures written down, but like uh, 2,000 minks furs and uh, uh, 1,000 otter furs and female otter furs. And it was like a, a small fortune for $60. He's bragging how <laughs> what a deal I got. But the Indians never understood this idea of the thing. They just thought, like, you giving us trinkets, that's nice. We'll be nice to you. You're welcome. Have a good time. Eat, enjoy, enjoy the place. Uh, they had no idea. So the Indians were still gathering in the village here. And the Dutch came and thought that the Indians were plotting to get rid of the Dutch. So they came up and slaughtered a number of Indians here. Wow. And that set a very ugly event. Now, this is the interesting part of the story. When they slaughtered him, this one slave, Manuel the Giant, ran away. And he crossed the Hudson, and he ended up just running into the woods as far as he could. He was just freaked out from the whole experience. And he's thinking he'll never see another black face. He'll never see a woman that he could ever be with again. His life is, you know, he doesn't care if he dies. And he collapses of exhaustion, and the Indians find him. And the Indians have never seen a black man. And they think he must be a white man's albino. That when white men have albinos, they look like black men. So they take him to their albino, who is a shaman in the tribe, and... He then is healed, brought back to life. He learns to speak some of the language, and he's taught about things that nobody ever knew before, like what's the weather like here? How, what, what are seasons like? What's to be expected? So he learned all these things from the Indians, but he realized that he still had a debt to pay because he had been freed by this guy Staghan in a sense, and, and he had to pay this guy back. So he said, my duty now is to go and tell the Dutch that these Indians aren't bad guys and they should learn from them and learn to live with them instead of slaughtering them. They made a big mistake. So he comes back and now there are nine other Indians, uh, uh, not Indians, nine other black slaves living down by Wall Street and the Dutch have built a wall there now because they're really paranoid that the Indians are going to come for them. So he comes back and he starts telling all these other black slaves about what he learned from the Indians and uh, how cool the Indians are and these, these are people they could relate to. Dutch didn't like this. So all of a sudden one of the black slaves was murdered and they accused all the other black slaves and every one of them said, no, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. I have no idea who did it. And they decide, the Dutch said, God's will that somebody has to be punished. So they draw straws. And of course, the shortest straw goes to Manuel the Giant. 
and uh, it was all set up to be that way. But he's so big that they tied two ropes, put the ropes around his neck, kicked the ladder out, and both ropes break. This is a true story. <laughs> Whoever fucked with the ropes the night before or what, who knows? But both ropes break, and of course all the slaves say, see, it's God's will that uh, he lived. So a couple of years later, they brought new slaves, and they freed all nine guys. And they all came up here to the village, which was still kind of swampy land. You know, it wasn't really wild, thick forest. It was more swampy. And there were lots of cleared hills, probably up to Washington Place. There was a nice sloping hill. And uh, so they farmed it. And uh, they were the very first ones to farm it. And Manuel the Giant farmed all of Washington Square Park all the way through where this store is, down to Bedford Street, and the other nine, I don't know, just different areas. Eventually, some rich guy came and bought the whole village from First Avenue all the way to the Hudson and made it his country estate. Just built a big mansion and just let it run wild and just rode around horseback and enjoy it. But uh, this is the beginning in the history of the village. It's, it hasn't changed much since then. <laughs> I love that story. That is sensational. Um, so one of the things I ask uh, a lot of the guests on the podcast, Taking a Walk, um, is, is what music means to them and the power of music, and what, what, it, you know, what it does, how it makes us feel. Can you speak to what music means to you? That's a big question, but let's start small, like (laughs) songs. It's kind of amazing how uh, it's hard to remember poems, but everybody remembers songs. They remember all the words, they remember the melody. Maybe they've only heard it two or three times driving in a car or something like that, but they remember, especially if it has some significant vibration, which is the the essence of the vibration of people's existence. Now, that's what music is. It's just, you know, another frequency level of just the vibrations of our lives. Uh, Life is so complicated, you know, Jupiter has a very strong gravitational force that we still feel on the Earth. We're in Jupiter's gravitational field. Uh, When people talk about uh, astrology or something, but the complexity of the vibration of existence in everybody's life is uh, somehow just touched, just a glimpse in this little range of sound that we were able to hear. Uh, And it is what it is. We, you know, we have our interests in smell. We have our interests in taste. We have certainly the eyes, but the ears give us a, a subtler level in which we can really sometimes sense the most intimate natures of the being uh, who presents it. And uh, the funny thing is, as a musician, I learned that the uh, the only ingredient that's necessary is that the musician listen. It just takes listening. Everything else is uh, in the hand of divine existence. Uh, All you got to do is listen and you hear it and then it'll touch other people. 
That's an amazing description. If uh, those of you that are not in New York or near the village, when you come to New York, come to the Music Inn. Yeah, my computer, uh, which is randomly uh, on its screensaver, is saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Jeff Slatnick, thank you for uh, being part of uh, Taking a Walk. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.